You can go ahead and uh, turn over in your Bibles to uh, Matthew chapter 10. I'm going to continue our study through the book of Matthew this morning. And then we'll have our communion time. Matthew chapter 10. And I just want to read it for us so it's fresh in our minds. Verses uh, 5 to 15. These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter into the city of Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Provide neither gold, nor silver, nor copper in your money belts, nor bag for your journey nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staff, for a worker is worthy of his food. For whatever city or town you enter in, inquire who is in it worthy, and stay there till you go out. And when you go into a household, greet it. And if the household is worthy, let your peace be upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you, nor hear your words... When you depart from the house or city, shake the dust off your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Uh, This morning, as we continue to look at Matthew uh, chapter 10, uh, part of this would be a little review from last week, but um, after having named these 12 apostles, uh, we saw that in the first five verses, um, we look at this text and it talks about how he not only trained these 12 guys to carry on his mission, but he also uh, sent them out. And so there's a twofold thing here. They're sending as well as they're training. They're not only going to be trained, but they're going to go out and they're going to preach the gospel of Christ and um, to a harvest of hopefully lost and, and, and scattered and shepherdless souls that we found out in, in verse 9. They were lost without a shepherd, and Jesus had compassion on them. And so he prayed that the Lord would send forth workers into the harvest, and he asked his disciples to pray, and they were the answer to their own prayer. And so here they get ready to go out. And so there's a twofold mission here. One is evangelism. Obviously, that's their primary job, to go out and to share Christ, to preach the kingdom of God is at hand. But also... Uh, a training. It's a training ground for them. It's kind of like an internship, and they're going to be out there for several weeks, and then they're going to come back, and then he's going to ask them what, what they learn, and you know they're going to be able to share, and it's going to be a learning opportunity for them as well. And so the Lord here is actually building disciples. That's what he's doing. And discipleship basically is a process where you take an individual, and they commit themselves to other individuals for an extended period of time to bring them to a place where they can reproduce themselves in the next generation. That's what discipleship is, and that's what our Lord was doing with these 12. And our Lord was committed to giving himself for an extended period of time to these guys. And that's what we should be committed as men and women who know Christ. uh, We should be committed to the same thing, discipleship. And uh, they would get a taste as they went out how it would be to evangelize. They would get a taste of how it would be to be confronted and different things, and they were kind of out side of the um, protective care of Christ as their shepherd, but he wasn't that far away that they couldn't, if something came up, they couldn't get a, get a hold of him. And so that's how it, it worked out here. And in verses 5 to 15, we see the principles of Jesus' ministry. 
and of any effective ministry. And then in verses 16 to 23, we see the reaction to what happened when they went out. And then finally, uh, verses 24 through the rest of the chapter, we see the cost, what it cost them as far as being a representative of Christ. And so they'd been with the Lord here for some time, many months now, and they'd seen all the miracles that he had done. They'd seen everything that he had performed, all these incredible things. They'd learned how to pray. And now they're ready to go out and evangelize the, the towns and the villages of Galilee. Basically where they grew up. And hopefully to reach a harvest of souls that was looked at in chapter 9. And so this multitude has been prepared in a way as well. Not only the apostles, but the multitude to which they're going. These lost people have been prepared. They had seen the Lord's, a lot of them had seen the Lord's miracles. They had heard him teach. And now their hearts were open. And so God was sending somebody to their open hearts. And that's the way the Lord works, isn't it? He always sends somebody to someone with an open heart. You see that throughout Scripture. Um, So the Lord sends forth what we would call the original missionaries, these 12 apostles, and they were sent by Christ himself, personally. And it wasn't something in and of themselves. We've looked at the character of these guys and who they were and their upbringing and everything. They were basically a bunch of unqualified guys, just like you and I are. Um, And Jesus basically poured his life into them. And the Bible says that he actually gave them power. In verse 1 of chapter 10, it says he called them and gave them power. In other words, they weren't able to do this in and of themselves. And that's how ministry is sometimes. You know, you go off kind of, you know, prideful and whatever into ministry and thinking you're going to do everything and you got, you know, God, you're God's gift to the church and, and God, he's going to work solely through you to do whatever. Um, you're going to be in a world of hurt pretty soon. Because God won't use a heart like that. God won't use an individual like that. He uses somebody who says, you know what, I'm not worthy of this. I don't even know if I can do this. But God, give me the power to do what you've called me to do. That's what he did to these guys. He gave them the power, but he also gave them these principles. Now, the time in which we're looking at, and we shared this last week, can't be duplicated today. We can't say, oh, this applies exactly the way it was written in the context today. This is, this is a particular time in history, okay? And there never will be, nor there has been, another time like this time where Christ was there sending out 12 of his apostles, telling them to go out and to preach the kingdom because he tells them to go specifically to the lost house of Israel. Don't go to anybody else, just go to Israel. And so there's limits to his ministry to them. And we talked about that last week. But what are the principles for effective ministry? You know, there's there's a couple different reasons why he uh, commissioned them. That's the first principle we looked at last week. He commissioned them. He says, these 12 Jesus sent forth and commanded them. They were under his orders specifically. They were going out to represent Jesus Christ. And see, one thing about people who are going into ministry, you have to understand that you're not your own person. So many times people go into ministry and they think, oh, they're just going to do whatever they want, whenever they want, to whoever they want, wherever they want. That's not how it works. God is the one who dictates where you'll go and how it will be and, and, and how long you'll be there and whatever. That's just the way it is. You don't call your own shots. 
There's a lot of people in ministry today that think they do. And their heart's in the wrong place as far as I'm concerned. You're under orders from Christ himself to go out and to do what he's told you to do. A divine commission. I mean, we have to understand what our giftings are. We have to understand how we're prepared and all that. But we also have to understand that we're under divine commission by God himself, by Christ himself. And we go out as one who represents Jesus Christ. You don't determine your own destiny. You don't mark out your own plan and your own pattern. Your own, you know, you're under his orders. And it doesn't matter whether you're in full-time ministry as a career or part-time ministry, as a, a volunteer, a helper, whatever it might be. We're all called to minister in some fashion. But we have to remember, when we do that, we're under his orders. We're not under our own, you know, divine insight to make our own plan and our own agenda. That's not how it works. So a divine commission. Secondly, we saw last week that the one who goes out representing Christ not only has a divine commission, but he has a central objective. We talked about how important it is to have precision in your ministry, to have a track, to have an understand how you're gifted and what God has gifted you to do, and then just do it. And in verses 5 to 6, we, we looked at, it says, Go not into the way of the Gentiles and into any city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost house of Israel. And we discussed three reasons why he said that. First of all, there was a specific place of the Jews in God's heart at that time. They were God's chosen people. They're the ones who were given all the promises, all the covenants, the ones who were given the law. And they were to be the channel through which the world would be reached. See, it wasn't like he was saying, okay, just go to the Jews and then the message is going to end there. You know, it's a call to Zach. It just stops. No, what Christ was saying, you go to the Jews first because I want to use them as a conduit to get this message out to everybody else, including the Gentiles. Because if they would have went to the Gentiles first, the Jews would have never heard their message. So it was because of God's special place in their, in, in, or the Jews' special place in God's heart. But also because of the problem of the twelve. They weren't equipped to reach out to the Gentile people. There was a cultural gap. They, they couldn't understand. Uh, you know, they, they were raised mostly Jewish. So for them to go and to, to preach to uh, a bunch of Gentiles, it, it wouldn't work. There was too big of a hurdle in their own mind to do that. Yet alone go to a Samaritan, which was a half-breed, a Jew and Gentile mixed. I mean, that was just unheard of. And so Jesus focused them in and he said, you know what? Because God's chosen people, the Jewish nation of Israel, and also because of your, basically, your, your limited abilities... Um, I'm going to send you to just these particular people. And then thirdly, we talked about the specific point of attack. The Lord knew that when people go out on a mission, they need to have a specific target. When somebody goes to the mission field, they don't come in and say, hey, you know, will you support me as a missionary? Where are you going? Oh, I don't know. I'm just going out in the world somewhere. What do you mean? Well, I'm just going to go find some lost people and start preaching to them. Well, you know, we're not going to support somebody like that. We're going to support somebody that comes and says, you know what, I've been praying about it. And, you know, there's this tribe down in Papua New Guinea or wherever. And, and you know, God has really laid them on our heart. And, and here's what we've done. And here's what we've, you know, prepared ourselves. And, and, and that's something we can get behind. They have a specific point of attack. Now, we don't go out today and just offer the gospel to the kingdom of Israel. 
We're beyond that. Okay, we don't just go to the Jews. We go to everybody, all the lost. And that's the, the divine commission, the great commission that the Lord gave. But at this point, in this time, God restricted them. And he said, just go to Israel. He wanted them to understand the divine commission, the central objective. And then the last thing we looked at was the idea that they should have a clear message. In verse 7, as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay? Um, very basic message. All right? It wasn't psychology. It wasn't, you know, philosophy, all this stuff. It wasn't politics. It wasn't human wisdom, economical stuff, anything like that. It was like the kingdom of God is at hand. This is what you're going to tell them. Literally that heaven is coming down to earth. Tell them that God and and his son and all that that means, everything that that involves, that's what he wanted them to talk about. That's what we should talk about when we go out there. It's so easy to get baited into politics or whatever and, and get off message. We need to keep the focus on the gospel. The fourth thing today, the fourth um, basic principle here of any ministry, especially the ministry of Christ, is a confirming credential. This brings us up to where our message will be for today. Um, If you were to go out and preach Jesus Christ, why should people believe you? Who are these guys? These are a bunch of fishermen and, and a tax collector. Why should anybody believe these guys? Why should people believe the twelve when they said, oh, the kingdom of God's at hand? Who cares? Why not go back to fishing? You know, why would they believe when they said Jesus is the Messiah? What, what gave people the ability to believe that? Why would they? I mean, if you stop and think about this, it's because they had credentials. They had some kind of confirmation. You know, when you go to a doctor and you go into his office and he does all this stuff to you and then he says, well, here, go do this and he writes your prescription. Hopefully somewhere in his office you look up on the wall and you see some kind of a a framed certificate that says so-and-so has gone, completed medical school and is licensed in the state of California to practice medicine. I mean, if you don't see one of those things or, you know, then there's something wrong because it's always right there in your face. Why? Because that's their credential. That gives them the ability to do what they do. It gives them the authority. Well, how, what are you going to do with 12 of these preachers that's going to go out, first time out, who's going to listen to them? There weren't seminaries. They didn't go to Bible school. I mean, they were the opposite of what the religious establishment looked for when they looked for religious training. They weren't educated in the right place. They were basically all from Galilee, not Jerusalem. They didn't belong to the right group. They weren't a Pharisee or a Sadducee or a Scene or a Zealot. None of them were. There wasn't any New Testament written yet to compare what they were saying with the truth. None of that was around. If they went and said, oh, you know, I'm going to share with you the Sermon on the Mount. Well, how do we know it's a Sermon on the Mount? Show me the copy of it. Well, why did people listen to these guys? Because they had credentials. Well, what were their credentials? Look at verse 8. 
He listened for us. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Those are the credentials of these apostles. And they were convincing enough to allow people to understand that they were representing God when they went out. Now, we've already discussed a lot of the specifics about healing and cleansing leopards and raising the dead and even casting out demons in previous messages in dealing with chapters 8 and 9. So we're not going to get into all that again. But I want you to see something here that's rather interesting. Turn over to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The second Corinthians was written by Paul, okay, the Apostle Paul. He was an apostle born out of due time. He wasn't part of this original uh, 12. Uh, he, he came afterwards. But he was in no, no less an apostle. In verse chapter 12 of Second Corinthians, verses 11 to 12, here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says in verse 11, I have become a fool in boasting... You have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended by you. For in nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. And then he says this. How do you know an apostle, Paul? Well, truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance. And then he says this. In signs and wonders and mighty deeds. What were the credentials of an apostle? Signs, wonders, and mighty deeds. Reverse that. Okay, mighty deeds were the miracles. That's what they did. And when they did those miracles, that created a wonder in people. And when that created a wonder, the apostles were able to point to God. It's not us, it's God that's doing it. And so their credentials there, the signs, wonders, and mighty deeds were there to bring honor to God. That's the proof. That's the way it was with Jesus. You remember the blind man, Jesus healed, and the Pharisees came along and they they questioned the blind man and they said, you you know, who did this? And, And the blind man's response to the Pharisees was, you mean you don't know who this guy is? He opened my eyes. I was blind from birth and you don't know who he is? In other words, he's saying it's pretty obvious to me that this guy came from God. Only God could do something like this. So the ability to do these things points them out as from God, as from the Lord himself. And that was very important in that time and in that day and age because, like I said, the New Testament wasn't written. They were living out the New Testament. But you know what? That's not all these miracles were intended to do. It wasn't just like, a, okay, guys, go out and have a little carnival sideshow, get everybody's attention, and then just, uh, you know, preach the gospel. That's not what the purpose of these miracles was. Because if that were the case, they could do a lot of other things rather than heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. They could go out on a corner and go, hey, watch this, and and levitate, and go up into the air, and then fly around and come back down. And say, hey, what do you think of that? I did that because God gave me the power to do that. Or they could say, watch this, and they could do some other crazy feat. They could read people's minds. They could do all sorts of things. 
If it was just purely for the reason of impressing somebody. But see, that wasn't the purpose. It was a little more than that. And that leads us to this first credential of the apostles. What was the first credential? Well, it was healing the sick, cleansing the lepers. What does that speak? That speaks that that Christ had compassion on people. That's the first credential of these guys. They had compassion and mercy on people in need. They could have done all sorts of other things, but they didn't. God reserved them and kind of limited them to these specific miracles, healing sick people, cleansing lepers, the down and out of society. Why? Because he wanted to show to those people the compassion and mercy that God has for them. He wasn't there just to impress them. He wanted to show his concern for those who were down and out, the poor. When John the Baptist was wondering if Jesus was really the Messiah, one of uh, uh, John's disciples, Jesus said to one of John's disciples, you know what, go and tell John this, the blind have received their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And you say, what's the big deal about the poor? Because... Throughout the Old Testament, throughout the entire Bible, really, God, as well as the Messiah, always was to show compassion, show merciful heart toward the poor. And one who truly represents Jesus Christ gives himself to the poor, the hurting, the needy, the downtrodden. It's characteristic of God's representatives to do that. In Psalm 918, it says, The needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. In Psalm 12, 5, it says, For the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now will I arise, says the Lord. I will set him in safety. And it goes on and on and on throughout the Psalms, talking about the poor, that God is concerned about the poor. That's why the Old Testament says over and over again through Ezekiel and Amos and and Isaiah, different places, that wicked men generally oppress the poor. That's what they do. They oppress the poor. They devour the poor, it says. They grind the faces of the poor. They crush the poor. They persecute the poor and they defraud the poor. People who are wicked and of the world use the poor to get their own means taken care of, whatever it might be. And Psalms says just the opposite, that he cares for them, he loves them. See, that's one thing you can tell, a false prophet right away. False prophets, false teachers generally are merciless and they have no compassion and basically they abuse people, especially poor people. That's why Christ said, beware of the scribes who love to go in long clothing and long salutations in the marketplace and the chief seats in the synagogues, and the uppermost places at feasts, who devour widows' houses. What do they do? They devour widows' houses. Some religious leaders actually devour, they extort from the poor. They take money from the poor. I mean, you see that all the time. And you hear it, read it in the news. People giving their last little penny to support some guy buying a Learjet or some crazy thing. Because they think that somehow God's going to bless them. If they just give, give, give. So they can line their pockets. 
So the first credential there is they had compassion. Secondly, it says raise the dead and cast out demons. Now, one thing pops into my head, there is power. He gave them power to raise the dead. He gave them power to, to overcome the power of darkness. I mean, you know what? I can't raise the dead. I can't uh, cast out a demon. I don't have that kind of power. And neither do you. And the people that are marching around thinking they do, they're just playing a charade. No one has the power and authority our Lord and his apostles had over demons and death. No one. You say, that sounds pretty... Bold statement. Well, that's what the Bible says. How does that relate to us? It shows us it's his power. It wasn't these guys' power. The marks of an apostle was power, but it wasn't their power. That's why in Matthew 7 it says you can tell a false prophet. You can tell them by the fruits, by their fruits. If you don't see any power, if you don't see any changed lives, if you don't see any... Dramatic transformations. Then maybe there's something wrong. It's important to see that. A true representative of God manifests power in whatever way. It doesn't have to be in some spectacular way. But here, they're not only raising the dead physically, But to us today, we are able to raise the spiritual dead through the power of Christ, through the gospel, as we share it with those who have yet been have been redeemed. A true representative of God, of Christ, will have power to shatter the demons as souls are released into the kingdom of God. So these apostles went forth, they had power. You can see that throughout all the gospels. If you're going to go out and represent Christ, you better have at least these two credentials, compassion and power. And not your own power, it's the power of God at work in you. And the third credential here, basically, is unselfishness. He says in verse 8, freely you have received, freely give. If I have compassion and mercy, that's not of the flesh, but it's of God. If I have power in my ministry, that's not of the flesh, that's of God. I didn't earn that power. There's nothing I could do to gain that power. The power is in the message of Christ. We get any power we have from God, right? I mean, we don't have any power in and of ourselves. And we didn't pay anything for it. And so since we didn't pay anything for it, we shouldn't charge anything for it. It kind of boils down to being unselfish. Back then, the Jewish exorcists, who were common in the time of Christ, they went around and they cast out demons, so they said, but they would charge people for it. Or even people back then who had, you know, some kind of physician. They didn't really have physicians as we know it. I mean, they did to some extent, but not like we do today. People would go around and say, oh, I'll make you better, but you've got to pay me. Just kind of like the doctors do today. But here come along the apostles, and with a word, somebody can be raised from the dead, or with a word, they can be made well. You can see how that undercuts the religious establishment kind of hand in the coffer there. And you would think that they would look at these guys and say, man, look at the power they have. 
They're going to make a fortune at this. And so Jesus warned them, don't take anything. In Acts 8, we're told about a sorcerer who was aware that the apostles had power, and he tried to buy it. (laughs) And Peter said, you know what? May your money perish with you because you have thought that you could buy the gift of God with money. Something like that can't be bought. The Holy Spirit's a free gift. And so Jesus says, you've received it freely, so give it freely. What's that mean? Modern day, today, that means don't go around charging people for your ministry. Don't put a price on your ministry. You don't do that. That was even true of the the rabbis. The rabbis were, were forbidden to charge certain things. They did it anyway sometimes, but they were forbidden. In their, in the law, in their Jewish law, in their oral law. See, people who are in ministry for money, you can always tell because there's always a price tag next to what they do. And whenever they put a price tag next to what they do, as far as I'm concerned, they just rob themselves of God's blessing upon it. 1 Peter chapter 5 says, we don't do this for filthy lucre. We don't do this for money. Paul said to Timothy, when you're looking for an elder, find a man who isn't interested in personal gain. When you ordain elders in every city, find a man who isn't interested in personal gain, he said. And you can go all the way back to the book of Isaiah 56 and read that. And same thing there, same warnings. Be careful. Sometimes people will ask, you know, hey, will you, you know, could you, uh, would you do this or do that, whether it's a funeral or a wedding or whatever. Sure, I'll help you out with that, whatever you need. Well, how much do you charge? I don't charge anything. Well, how much do we give you? Whatever you, whatever God puts on your heart, you give to the church, you give to whatever you want to do. I'm not going to give you an amount. I'm not going to ask you to do anything. You can absolutely have done funerals for people that have no money at all and you don't walk away nothing. That's okay. It's not about the money. So I don't understand. Sometimes people have a little, you know, they whip out their little price sheet, you know. Oh, funeral? Okay. Uh, does that include the viewing? Or because, you know, it's a little more for that. And do you want the graveside too? Because that's an extra 150 bucks. Literally. That's how some churches operate. I mean, that's why we here, you know, if, if we have a church that's like us in faith and practice or whatever, and, you know, you got to be careful here, but, you know, if, if they want to use our building or whatever and we're not using it for an event or something like that, you know, we're always, hey, okay, what is it? How many people? Whatever. And, you know, sure. Well, how much do you charge? We don't charge anything. It's not our building. It's God's building. If we're not using it, you're, if you're part of God's body, you're free to use it. If you want to put a, something in the donation bucket, go ahead. But we're not going to ask you for anything. And to be honest with you, sometimes we've been burned on that. (laughs) People come and kind of abuse the place. So, you know, but it's, it's, it's the idea that, you know, it's not ours. It's, we've been freely given this and you know what? We, we want to, we want to allow others to use that as well. So you don't set a price on things like that. Um, that leads to the next thing here, a confident faith. A confident faith. Um, 
It's a mark of someone who's in ministry, you might say, for the right reasons. The divine commission, a central objective, a clear message, a confirming credential, and now a confident faith. And you say, well, how do you work it in ministry if, I mean, you know, how do you, how do you function? <laughs> By faith. When we came here, I didn't come to the elders and say, okay, you know what? Um, here's my price. If you want me to come here, here's my price. I was just surprised they wanted me to come at all, let alone, no. <laughs> so, whatever they were going to give me was fine with me. But you know, that's part of the faith that God expects someone in ministry to have. And it's kind of a two-sided thing. I believe on one hand, God will meet my needs. That's why he says in verse 9, he says, As you go, take neither gold, silver, or copper in your purses. That's just basically coins that they had in that day and age. And what he's saying is, don't take anything with you. Don't take any money. I mean, a lot of times when we go somewhere, we think that we have to amass a fortune before we take the trip. Well, in ministry, that's not the case. If I'm not going to charge anyone, and I've freely received and I'm freely going to give, well, how am I going to support myself? So we think, well, as soon as I get all the money in my bag, then I can go on this trip. No. He says, don't take anything. Don't take any money at all. And then he says, don't take a bag. It refers to a food bag, a sustenance bag, little snacks and stuff you need on your trip. A goodie bag. He says, don't even take that. He says, don't take two coats, shoes, nor a staff. And you're sitting there going, well, what, what do you mean? I'm just going to go out there, what? I mean, you have clothes on my back, that's it? He's teaching them a principle. At the end of verse 10, he points out that principle. He says, a worker is worthy of his food or of his sustenance. What's that principle? The principle basically says, you know what? You can't leave this up to God. God will take care of your resources. You just have to go in confident faith that God will meet your needs. You don't take anything. It's kind of like survival training. Just go out there. Got to meet you. I mean, he's trying to teach him confident faith, a confident trust. I mean, this is how the rabbis were in Jesus' time. They were never to put a price on anything. They were never to demand anything or ask a fee. The people they ministered to were always to supply their needs. So you could see that he was modeling that for them because he didn't want them to go there and say, well, you know, and then the, Jew, the Jews look at these guys and say, well, you got everything paid for. It's easy for you. We're not allowed to do that. No, he wanted them to go out into their society in a way that would, would build bridges. God would bless them because they took care of God's servant. And so there's kind of a double instruction here. God's man is never to be over-concerned with material things. That's just the way it is. But on the other hand, the people of God must make sure that they do their duty to support Him. You don't name a price, but it's a responsibility of those you're serving before God to support 
you as you serve them. That's just the way it is. First Timothy chapter five, verses 17 to 18, it says, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor. It isn't just meeting their need, it's honoring them. It's not just honoring them, it's double honoring them if they work hard in, in word and in doctrine. Don't muzzle the ox that treads, the Bible says. If you want the animal to work, you've got to feed it. In 1 Corinthians 9.14, Paul says, Then you, they who preach the gospel should live of the gospel. It doesn't mean live what you preach. It means you make a living by your preaching. That's what you do. But you can't put a price on it. You need to remain unselfish. God wants you to have a lot, he'll give you a lot. If he wants you to keep you humble, he'll keep you humble, whatever it is. That's up to him. And it's, it's kind of neat the way it works because, you know, beloved, if you never ask for anything, per se, whatever you get is gravy because you're not expecting anything. That's just the way it works. And I've told the elders several times that, you know what, if this economy turned down and, and hey, they, you know, just we didn't have people in the church to support a full-time pastor and whatever, I'd do whatever it takes. I'd go get a job somewhere else or whatever it would take. I wouldn't just go look for another church that could pay me full-time because I just want to be full-time. It's not being about full-time. It's about using your gifts in the way that God has asked you to do it. I can use my gifts probably just as well serving up coffee at Starbucks and witnessing the people and, and serving here part-time, whatever. Whatever comes down the pike is fine with me. And that leads to the, the sixth principle where it comes, it's basically called a settled contentment. One who represents Christ and sent out as an ambassador for Christ must be content. He doesn't put a price on his ministry. He trusts God to supply. And God will supply through the people according to the diligence and faithfulness of his ministry. But he's to be content with what he receives. In verse 11, it's pointed out. He says, in whatsoever city you or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy. What does that mean? It doesn't mean wealthy. Okay, that's not what he means. It means worthy. It means someone whose character, lifestyle, and integrity would be a fitting place for you to stay. I mean, sometimes, you know, we've put speakers and stuff in hotels down on El Camino. And I look at some of those hotels. And some of those hotels are probably a, a stone's throw from all the adult pornography shops in Redwood City. And I'm thinking, is that really wise <laughs> to put somebody who's coming to minister in our church at a hotel that's even within a block of one of those places? I mean, the guy could just be out instantly going to Wendy's and be walking by an adult shop just because it's on the way. And somebody's seeing him. Oh, look, that guy, I saw him speak at that church. Look where he's coming out of. He wasn't just walking by. You never know. And so when he sent them out, he said, be careful where you stay. That's the point here. Find a, a worthy place doesn't mean they have to stay at a five-star hotel, but somewhere where it's worthy. And notice he says, when you find that place, abide until you leave the town. In other words, stay there all the time. Be content with what God has provided you. 
And what was happening back then and what even happens today sometimes, you go to minister somewhere, say you go to a church to, to teach a lesson or something. And some little couple in the back of the church meets you at the door. Would you stay with us? Sure. Okay, that's fine. And then, you know, halfway through the week, say Wednesday night after the meeting, some guy comes up and says, Hey, you know, Pastor, why don't you come on over to our place and stay? Because, uh, you know, I'm up on the hill and we have eight pools. And, boy, it's just a really nice place. And here you are in this little, you know, two-bedroom place over here. And, 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 and he's saying, you know what? Be content with that. Don't upgrade. Okay, that's not an option. Don't look to upgrade. Just be content with what God provided. If he wanted you to stay up on the hill with the eight swimming pools, those people would have met you first. You know, it's all in God's providence. Be content with what God gives you. Paul said to Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. It's hard to be content. I don't know about you. It's hard for me to be content. It's something you always got to work at. Paul said, I've learned in whatever state I'm at, in this to be content. I know how both to be abased and how to abound. So contentment is another principle that he would want us to to know. Last two, quickly. Concentration on the receptive. He says, when you come into a house, greet it. And if the house be worthy, let your peace be upon it. What's he saying here? When the disciples found a worthy place to stay and they went into that house, they were to stay there and minister to those people who opened their home to them. And once they established their lodging, they could begin their ministry in that town. And they would go house to house and they would preach the gospel of Christ. And whenever they visited another home, they were to greet the people in it. The Jewish greeting, obviously, shalom, peace. And basically, it meant everything. It meant wholeness, soundness, health, wealth, prosperity, well-being, blessing. It was kind of a benediction from God saying, God's blessing upon this house. This house be blessed. But verse 13 says this, If the house is worthy, let your peace come on it. Notice that. If the house is worthy. If it's worthy, pour out your blessing. Man, minister to those people. Do everything you can for those people. Concentrate on those who are receptive, is what he's saying. Find the open hearts, the places where the gospel has access and receptivity, and pour yourself into that place. I mean, sometimes I think we spend too much money, or too much time, and money maybe, trying to preach to people who aren't receptive. I mean, that's what the whole kind of church growth movement about today is, is getting people who aren't receptive to Christianity in so they'll sit in a service, feel comfortable, and then just kind of give them little bits and pieces, kind of a a watered-down gospel, so that at least they'll sit there for 30 minutes or 20 minutes, in some cases may have it, and amongst the theatrical and the music and everything else, uh, hear somebody talk about something sometimes roughly related to God's Word. And so we end up preaching to people who really don't want to hear. Or or you, 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 you bring them in under false pretenses. 
You know, we'll just come on out and, you know, and it's just, a, you know, whatever. And we're just going to have, you know, dinner. Well, your whole purpose is not just to have dinner. You, you want to preach the gospel to this person. And, and so, you know, you invite them under the thing of dinner. And then when you get them there, it's, you know, it's an all-out evangelistic crusade. Because we want to reach them for the lost. But we have to understand that, hey, if they're not receptive, they're not receptive. And I think sometimes we have to understand that I know within my own heart, within my own life, I'm called to preach to those who want to hear the most, who want to learn the most, who want to have a hungry heart for God's Word. That's who I'm called to preach to. I mean, you're always going to have uncommitted people within the body of Christ. That's just the way it is. You could spend 24-7 going after the uncommitted people. What are you going to do about the people that are there every week and are committed? You're just going to let them just show up and not do anything for them? Concentrate on feeding the people who are willing to receive God's word. That's what's going to change the world. And we have to find places where people's hearts are open. Just like these multitudes, their hearts were open to the gospel. That's why he sent them there. And the last principle, and then we'll close, reject the contemptuous. Reject the contemptuous. Not only go to those who are open, but reject the contemptuous. In verse 13, look at what he says. If if the house be not worthy, if they're not interested, if they're not receptive, what's he say? Let your peace return to you. That's an oriental expression. And what that means is, you know what? If that house is not worthy, take back the blessing. Literally, take it back. They would unbless a house, literally, as they walked out the door. They would come home, they would come to a house, they would say, peace be unto you in the name of Christ. If that home was vile or rejecting of that message, they'd say, hey, sorry, we take back our peace, see you later. This house now is unblessed. They would actually do that, physical act. And so he says, if you find a place where they are not worthy, then let your peace return to you. Don't waste it on them. Take it back. Don't give them God's benediction if they're not worthy of it. I mean, I've even caught myself sometimes, you know, have certain groups that go around and knock on doors and things like that and and I've caught myself. You know, I mean, they're nice people, but they, they don't serve the Christ that we serve. They serve another Christ, a false Christ. But they look so nice dressed up and their little families and their bicycles and all sorts of things. And they're nice people, but they're lost. Not because of what church they go to, but they're lost because of what message they believe. They don't believe the message of Christ. And I've caught myself at times after a prolonged conversation with these people. You know, you break the ice, you kind of get to know them a little bit. And if they're walking away, hey, okay, well, God bless you. (laughs) What did I just say? (laughs) When they don't have the same gospel we have, we shouldn't say that. I don't want God to bless them, to be honest. (laughs) I don't want their message to go forth because it's not the true gospel. He's saying, don't pronounce benedictions on people who are godless. Don't say, bless you, brother, to someone who's not even within the the family of God. 
God's blessing is not something to be just thrown around indiscriminately. Nor should people live under the illusion that they are redeemed when maybe they're not. So in verse 14, he says, Whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear your words, when you depart out of that house or that city, what's he say? Shake off the dust of your feet. That was a physical thing that the Jews did. When they traveled in the time of Christ, they would get covered with dust. Even over there now, you get covered with dust a lot of times. And when G- Jewish people returned to Israel, they would literally, as, mi- as soon as they stepped on, they would, they would wipe the dust off their feet so they wouldn't bring any t- contaminated Gentile or Samaritan dust into their land. It was a physical act that they, they did. And so he says, you know what? You're going to go to the lost house, the sheep of the, the house of Israel, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And if they don't hear your message, then you know what? You treat them the way you treat a Gentile. Those are strong words. That's what Paul did at the synagogue in Antioch. In Acts 13, he went in and went to, went to the synagogue. He always went to the synagogue first, even though he was commanded to go to the, the Gentiles. He went to the Jews first. And when they didn't hear his message, what did he do? He'd dust his feet off. And he'd go next door to the Gentiles. And he treated the Jews like Gentiles and the Gentiles like Jews. Does this mean that we're to reject the contemptuous? If we go to share a Christ with someone and they aren't interested? Oh, well, dude, see you later. Burn in hell. And walk away? Is that what I'm saying? No. That's not what this is saying. A lot of us wouldn't be redeemed if that were the case, right? I mean, how many of us, the first time we heard the gospel, we just, boom. Oh, yeah, okay, i got to get saved. No, it took a while. It took several times. See, the, the assumption here is that when people have seen the miracles, they fully heard the message, they've been given, given ample time, ample opportunity to respond, yet they still reject Christ. When you leave, treat them as pagans, because that's what they are. In 2 Corinthians 5.20, Paul says this, We beg you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. There's a begging that goes on to an unbeliever, beloved. We have to beg them. We plead with them. Please come to Christ. Believe the gospel. Don't believe in good works. Good works never saved anybody. It doesn't matter what church you go to. It doesn't matter anything about that. It doesn't matter how good you think you are. You're not. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We need to beg and plead people to believe that. But when the pleading is done and the credentials are manifest and all the signs are given and they still refuse, basically the Bible says, you know what? Walk away. Don't give them a benediction of God. Just walk away. In verse 15, here is the key. He says, verily I say to you, it shall be more tolerable in the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. It wasn't very good for Sodom and Gomorrah. Fire and brimstone rained down on that and buried it, basically. They don't even know where it's at today. This assumes, basically, that the town in Galilee, or the house in Galilee, knew and heard more than Sodom and Gomorrah did. Because it draws a comparison there. The point is, they must have had a lot of information. And they still rejected it. 
The idea is when a city with a greater exposure to the truth of God, representatives of God himself through the apostles, giving them the message clear and authenticating it with credentials and everything, they turn their back on that, then it's kind of like a Hebrew 6 situation. They've been exposed to all the data. They still refused. It's impossible for them to renewed, be renewed to repentance. What's that mean? There's nothing else to show you. There's nothing else you can do for them. When you've done your best, but they're unreceptive, don't waste your time. Sounds harsh, but that's what the Bible says. Well, we've learned that the Lord sent his disciples out two by two, and he gave them these principles. A divine commission, a central objective, a clear message, a confirming credential, a confident faith, a settled contentment, a concentration on the receptive, and a rejection of the contemptuous. And you know what? That's really... You say, well, what's that have to do with me? I'm not in ministry per se. You know what? We're all in ministry. We're all in ministry. Maybe we're all not pastors or missionaries or whatever, but we're all called to minister in Christ's name. Because we're believers in Christ. As you go through those principles, see how they affect all of us and apply apply them to our own hearts. If God were to compare those standards, those principles to your life, would you be a faithful minister for Christ? Do you run your life, your, your ministry, whatever it may be, your representation of Christ by those standards? The world has all the wrong criteria. They never would have picked any one of these 12 disciples to be missionaries. They have all the wrong standards, but God has all the right ones. close with a little illustration before we have our communion time. At three o'clock on a cold morning in the winter, a missionary candidate walked into an office for an appointment with the examiner of a mission board at 3 a.m. The examiner had told him to report at three in the morning. The examiner arrived at the office at 8 a.m., five hours later. The examiner, without a word of explanation, sat down and said, let's begin. You want to become a missionary for this agency? I'm going to ask, have to ask you a couple questions. First, can you spell Baker? The young man said, B-A-K-E-R. The examiner replied, very good. Now let me see how you do with figures. What's twice two? The young man looked at him and said, four. The examiner said, excellent. I'm going to recommend you to the board tomorrow that you be appointed as a missionary. You've passed the test. And then he left. At the board meeting, the examiner spoke so highly of the applicant that he was one of the finest young men that they had yet seen. He said, he has all the qualifications of a missionary. First, I tested him on self-denial. I told him to be at the office at 3 a.m. in the morning in the cold. He left a warm bed, came out in the cold, and never had a word of complaint. Secondly, I tested him on punctuality. He was there at 3. Third, I examined him on patience by making him wait five hours to see me. He didn't even question why I was late. Fourth, I tested him on temper, but he didn't show any sign of it. Fifthly, I tested him on humility by asking him questions that a little child could answer. And he showed no offense. 
He meets the requirements. See, patience, humility, punctuality, which demonstrates we care for someone else's time. Sacrifice, that you go out in the middle of the night. See, those are the things that God can use to make a man into what he wants him to be. He's made these 12, and he gave them these principles for their mission. And that's the, the principles that he desires us, I believe, to live our lives, to minister in the name of Christ as well. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we pray that you would work in our hearts uh, now as we prepare our, our hearts for communion. Father, we thank you that we've learned how to represent you. Um, Lord, we're all, those of us who know Christ here this morning, we're what, you, what your word calls Christians. We're little Christ. And may the world see Christ in us. May the world see his compassion, his power, his selflessness. May we know how to live by faith, trusting you in everything. May we be content in whatever you give us, whether it be little or great. May we focus on the receptive and reject those who reject you. That we may go to the lost and dying worlds with the message of Christ. I pray, Lord, as we commit this communion time to you, that you would show us if there's anything in our hearts that needs to be cleared up with you. And, Father, we pray that you would uh, make that clear to us. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.